Are you looking into wealth management but have no idea where to start or even what type to get into? Well, we're here to help. Derek Myron is located in San Diego and is the Managing Director of Centura Wealth Advisory. He's going to tell you on this episode what you need to know about wealth management, which types of trusts are most commonly used, the difference between a charitable lead trust and a charitable remainder trust, and his opinion on which you should not get involved in. Let's just get right down to business. The Joe Roberts Show. This, this is The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. The Joe Roberts Show. Hello, Derek. Welcome to the show. Let's get rolling by giving us a brief background about yourself and the company. Joe, thanks for having me. My name is Derek Myron, and I'm a certified financial planner based in San Diego, California. And we have a company called Centura Wealth Advisory. And we do um, planning and asset management. And for those clients who want both, we call that wealth management. And we've been, I've been doing it since 1998 and went independent in 2001. And we serve high income individuals and high net worth families. Those are um, our two categories of folks that we serve. And how did you stumble upon this opportunity? <laughs> yeah, so I graduated college from the University of Washington, got my degree in finance, worked for my older brother managing construction projects. I got fired one day, thought it was the worst day of my life. And I decided, okay, I'm gonna pursue what I got my degree in, in, in finance, went to work for the principal financial group for three years. And my dad unexpectedly passed at a young age, 66 years old. We had a blended family and all the financial people in his life had not done a good job coordinating, causes many problems in our blended family that could have easily been avoided. Many of the problems could have easily been avoided. And I said, gosh, we should help folks, this two to $100 million crowd, and bring all these services under one roof. And when we first started, we bought up tax practices and we had a law firm and we had the insurance folks and the financial folks and the tax folks all under one roof providing coordinated financial planning. Today, we found it much better to have those services separated because we um, oftentimes it, it may alienate tax folks or legal folks or whatnot that uh, all the services are under one roof. So we have separated those services and coordinate with the best centers of influence that also serve this demographic to figure out what are the best strategies from a planning standpoint to provide reduced risks and the best optimized result for our clients. I know some people are out there searching for, uh, you know, to hire people for their planning. What are some things for them to look at when it comes to, like you said, whether it's specialized services or all under one roof? I've seen some different people promote that it's much better to be under one roof because it's a one-stop shop. What is your feedback? So my feedback is that um, clients, first it's about the process. The process is facts, assumptions, and goals. And if they've done a very good job of getting the entity chart, getting a balance sheet for each uh, box on the entity chart, understanding the investment estate planning goals, getting the professional roster of people who are serving. And then from those professional roster, they should say, look, what are the two, three, four, five strategies that should be investigated on behalf of this family? Whether those professionals are under the same roof or there are other professionals at different firms that have expertise in those particular strategies, we may need to augment the, the team. You know, the client may say, look, I have this fantastic CPA that I have a lot of trust in. I have this attorney. I haven't spoke to him very often. Who are the, you know, interviewing those people and then getting the right people on the team 
to say, okay, these are the people that, that should serve us. And what are the ideas and get those ideas ranked? Okay, these are the three or four ideas that should be considered. And if we're talking about income tax planning, we're talking about a forward-looking figuring out how best to mitigate this Rubik's Cube or this Plinko machine called the IRS or the state taxing authority. And so it's figuring out we're in 2020, what's the income going to look like in 2020, 2021, 2022, out for the next five or six years? We're trying to figure out what are those different flavors of income? What does it look like? And we don't want the pie in the sky numbers. We don't want the too low numbers. We want the median expectation. We understand the further you go out, the less confident you are about those numbers because things happen like a pandemic and it changes the numbers. To start with, we want to get those numbers over to the CPA and say, okay, let's assume the tax law remains the same. Let's assume that the Trump tax cuts of December 22nd, 2017 are in effect. If we don't do anything, what's the outcome? And let's just get the CPA to run those numbers and produce, what does that outcome look like? No, so that is basically like a initial consultation you guys typically would do with a, a client. And is that part of the process, I guess you have outlined as liberated wealth? So good question. So we have this five-step process and um, step one is this uncover. Mm-hmm. And this is getting the facts, the assumptions and the goals. And then on, in phase two is this unlock, interviewing the, un, the other professionals, understanding who are the people on the team, and then what are the strategies that we should go and cover? Unfortunately, that takes three or four meetings. And then this is when we typically engage with clients. We'll say, here's the things that we think we should go model with you. And these are, the, these are what we think the potential outcomes might be. We think you're going to save between a half million and two million bucks in income tax over the next two years. Um, here's the risks. Here's the cost to implement. Here's the cost to manage. Uh, here's the risk level from IRS scrutiny standpoint. Um, and we think that you should hire us hourly or lump sum uh, to start modeling these solutions. And typically we offer in our, in our planning what's called the value shield, which says, look, we're going to give you so much time. Oftentimes these numbers are, are large to engage us. Like, well, how do we know if you're going to create value? Said, so, look, we only take engagements that we know we can add lots of value and we shy away from engagements that we don't think we can add a lot of value. And we're so sure that we offer you this value shield that says through so many months of planning, if at any time, if you want your money back, ask for your money back and you'll invest the time. We've invested time and we'll part as friends. Uh, The reason we do that is we don't want two meetings to talk about, Derek, how much value are you really going to create? We just would much rather demonstrate it rather than discuss it. So you guys kind of do the uncover and the unlock for the client to give them a high level of what the, they may be able to save over the future few years. And then they can come on as a client and engage you guys. Right. We don't, we want those first couple meetings to see how quickly do they respond? Are they good about getting this information? Do we really think we're going to unlock value? If we're not going to unlock value, we're going to review that. We're going to say, look, here's the two or three people you should go explore. We don't think we're the right firm for you. So we want to put a few meetings in just to see if we're a good fit. And so when it comes to those initial meetings, what are the important aspects that you guys are covering when it comes to the tax planning or maybe the family's values and what their plans are? Absolutely. So it starts with getting those facts and assumptions. And then from there, once you have the facts and assumptions, you can ask really good questions. And that's, you know, people are either running towards something or running away from something I find. And so it's how you word the question to determine what's really important to Joe. Is it, is it this or is it really, no, I'm trying to avoid that. And the more facts you have, the better questions you can word 
to, to really tease out what the real information is. And from a lot of your clients, what are you seeing and, and what are they mostly running towards? Yeah, good question. So I tell clients that it doesn't matter how wealthy our clients are, whether they're worth a million or a billion dollars, they, they never point to their net worth as how wealthy they feel. Clients feel net worth by excess cash flow. If they have an extra five, 10, 100 grand a month pouring into their accounts that they don't know where to put the money, like, wow, I feel wealthy. We have clients that are super illiquid, have a hundred million dollar estate that feel poor. I'm like, and you and I can look at it and say, that's ridiculous. It's not ridiculous. That's emotionally true for that individual. That person, I've, I've got people that have a hundred million dollar estates that have been felt poor for 10 years because they're locked into certain positions. Do you see that a lot in like venture and real estate as two areas that are non-liquid and lacks cash Absolutely. flow? Absolutely. Whether, whether it be a family business, whether it be real estate, it's typically family businesses where you're, you've got tons of phantom income and they're paying huge taxes and they're not getting the cash flow. And so they just keep feeding it and feeding it. And someday they're going to have a liquidity event or particular types of real estate ventures, the same kind of thing that a lot of, maybe there's a lot of development work where they're having to feed it. Those kinds of profiles have felt cash strapped for a long period of time. And so how do you, how do you help those people unlock that? Um, That's one profile we see often. And now the other part you mentioned was the going away from, right? Yeah. Running away from. So so sometimes when we say, um, you know, at the end of the day, there's three beneficiaries that your money can benefit. It's either friends and family, charity, or government. And if you said, look, do you want to give all your money to your friends and family? Like, no, I don't want to give all my money to friends and family. Do you want to give all your money to charity? No. Do you want to give all your money to the government? No. Okay. How much do you want to give to the government? Okay. Under 10%. Okay. How much do you want to give to charity? Well, maybe 20. Okay. So you really want to give like 70% to your friends and family. Yeah. Okay. It's the least of the three evils, right? Like they, they're not running to give 70% to, the, to their friends and family. They're running away from wanting to give too much money that they've scraped and saved and didn't go on certain vacations. They don't want to give it away to the government and see it ill spent. And so what are some important tax strategies that you guys are currently implementing to hit that certain allocation of percentages? So I think today um, we're in 2020 and 2017, they passed the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act and they doubled the estate tax exemption. And I don't know what the age of your listener is, but in historical terms, this estate tax exemption today is $11.58 million. And historically, we've had an estate tax since 1916. So 104 years of estate tax. It's been eliminated four times for a total of six years in our 104-year history. Last time was in 2010 for one year. George Steinbrenner, the owner of the Yankees, planned his death. He died in 2010, passed the Yankees, didn't pay any state tax, didn't get a step up in basis either, but he was able to pass the Yankees. So since then, we've had an estate tax. And today, by historical standards, if you were to take a cost of living adjustment from 1916 to present, the exemption would be 1.4 million. And today, it's at 11.58. Now, we just had this pandemic that just ruined every budget from city, state, federal, everybody's hurting for money. Um, I think most people, regardless of who wins the November 3rd election, believes that this exemption will be mean reverting. The current law takes it from 11.58, continues to increase it by cost of living until January 1st, 2026, and it cuts it in half, around 6 million per person. Biden proposal is to cut it 
to three to three and a half million and remove the step up in basis. Now, if they win four Senate seats and retain the House, they have three ways with a simple majority next year. So they'll be put in office in January 20th, 2021. Sometime about this time next year, they theoretically could pass new legislation to eliminate the Trump tax cuts retroactive to January 1st, 2021. So that's huge legislative risk could take away this tax benefit of this $11.5 million. Now, the IRS gave us a huge gift in 2019. They said, no matter what, Joe, no matter what, if you give away your exemption, we cannot come back and tax you on it. And you're like, Derek, that's fantastic. But if I, or I don't know if you're married, Joe, but if I'm just going to make it up that you and your wife are married and you have $23 million and you say, great, I can give it away and they can't tax me on it. But Derek, I'm, I may need that money for my own spending, my own living expenses. So how can I have my cake and eat it too? How can I set it up such that I can get asset protection, wealth transfer, dynasty provisions that I can keep transferring from generation to generation, but still have the access to all the income I need for my own life? We've encouraged all of our clients to explore these strategies before they're taken from you because it's a use it or lose it system. And so that's, we've been extremely busy this year getting those things set up in the event that Democrats win in November and they change the law next year retroactively to January 1st, 2021, thereby taking this little period in history where it was exorbitantly way over the mean. So effectively, since there may be a change in the tax code, you guys are doing as much planning uh, on the estate tax side or passing down to other well, heirs, heirs using a trust? Heir, well, when this is just wealth transfer. This is, I want to protect it for my family, but I still need it for myself. Now, even our clients that are worth $100 million still are saying, gosh, maybe I want it, but maybe I don't feel wealthy enough yet to give it to my family. I still want it for the benefit of my wife and I. So how can I set this up and preserve this the best way I possibly can? So these are these are strategies that we're looking from a wealth transfer standpoint. And these are clients, you know, 10, 10 million and up that are, you know, 45 and up generally say the folks that are considering these kinds of strategies. Now on the income tax side, many people believe that we are at very, very low income tax rates. I, I believe that as well. However, you can live in a state where you then levy the state income tax on top of the federal income tax. It gets pretty punitive. California all in it's top rate. You're at 52%. And they're planning on taking it up to 54 or 55%. It's crazy. You saw that Jeff Goonlock the other day said, all realtors and non-tax income tax states, please give me a call. Uh, advertising that the bond manager may leave Los Angeles. It's getting crazy. Do you believe that? I mean, do you think there's a big exodus of people really leaving? Or do you think the majority of those with a lot of wealth will maintain their residence? I think that the numbers are already showing it. These, these high income tax states in California and New York, there's a massive exodus. I think it can be evidenced by the, I think I'm going to screw up the number, but I think it's AB 1253, which is the wealth tax that has passed the assembly in California and essentially said, listen, even if you leave the state of California, we're going to tax you for the next 10 years. It's going to go down by 10% a year. So the first year you owe 100% of the tax. Next year, 90, then 80, 70, 60. So they built that into the their proposal to say, even if you leave, you can't escape. It's like, checking in at the California hotel. You can check in, but you can never leave. That, that's good. And what at what point should someone start looking at these strategies or have a conversation? Is there uh, a certain net worth that it makes sense financially, typically? So for wealth transfer, I think it starts to really make sense at 10 million and above. Uh, 
could make for married couples and singles, maybe 5 million and above. And it's really, it really depends at the end of the life, you know, what percentage do you want to go to those three parties, right? How much do you want to go to friends, family, charity, and government? And if you, and it really depends that first piece, the, the friends and family and how much you think your estate's going to grow. And, you know, what do you think inflation looks like in the future? And, you know, running those, running that math kind of says, okay, this could be a big number. I better do some wealth transfer planning today because we're at a very unique time in history right now to be able to do it because it's so the tools that have been given us um, very likely will be taken away from us, no matter who's in office in the next 10 years. Based on the budget constraints, these things are likely are going to mean revert. And what is the typical mechanism that you're using for this wealth transfer at this time? So there's many different uh, estate planning structures, and it really comes down to facts, assumptions, and goals. In one hour, it'd be very difficult to, to cover <laughs> that. I think I think it would be more helpful to talk about income tax planning. I yep. think that um, there's lots of things from an income tax planning that can really help. Um, I listened to a couple of your podcasts. Um, and so again, it's about getting the facts, assumptions, and goals, getting it spread out into that six-year adjusted gross income to make this projection, then getting the numbers over to the CPA and get down to, we call it baseline. If, assuming tax loss stays the same, these are the numbers that come in on the revenue side. Here are the above line deductions. Now I've got what my adjusted gross income would look like and what, what the taxes will be. Okay, what are the strategies that Joe Roberts should consider to mitigate this income tax burden? Should I consider setting up a retirement plan or defined benefit plan? Should I figure out I have, a, I know that Joe, you were in a bunch of mortgages that throw off very not desirable income. You could move down to Puerto Rico. Not everybody's going to be able to move to Puerto Rico. Maybe I can get a structure around those investments called private placement life insurance. Maybe I can get that inside of a structure. Why? What's, what's so beneficial about having private placement life insurance? There is four fantastic benefits of life insurance. Benefit one is, is that you get tax deferred buildup, meaning that any gains are not recognized. Tax benefit two. Well, what if I've put a million or $5 million in this and I want that money back? This is one product that you get first in, first out treatment. You get to take out your basis with no tax. Benefit three. Well, what if my five million has grown to 15 million and I need five million of gains? You borrow from yourself under a wash sale very, very low terms, or you pledge the pro that policy as collateral. You can borrow the money, call it 2% instead of paying the tax. Much more efficient than paying the tax. And then finally, fourth, you get a step up in basis on those assets when you die. Now, most people don't like retail insurance. Why? Huge commissions, misalignment, not flexible. Got to keep it for a long number of years to pay off the acquisition costs. They could change the cost of insurance. Like, God, I don't like all those things. What if I Guaranteed the cost of insurance and the all in cost is like 110 basis points a year. Wow, that starts to sound pretty fantastic. They give these tax benefits because insurance is supposed to be for widows and orphans. And that was the original, that was the original thought process of offering all of this. Very wealthy individuals have understood how to use these contracts to really mitigate their income tax burdens and to pass the money on with no transfer tax. Step up in basis and then get it outside their estate so there's no transfer tax. So very efficient. So we talked about retirement plans. We talked about putting PPLI around it. What are ways to mitigate it? What are ways to get big deductions? How can we get big deductions? Well, there are charitable deductions. And what works extremely well today are 
charitable lead annuity trusts. Typically, when I talk to most folks, they've heard of charitable remainder trusts, which is the mirror image. And they work, charitable remainder trusts work well when interest rates are high. Charitable lead annuity trusts work extremely well when interest rates are low. And so today, if Joe, if you said, look, Derek, I'm going to give away a dollar today to a 501c3, you get a dollar tax deduction. But what if you promise to give away a dollar 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now? The IRS publishes an interest rate every month and you get to choose this month or the two preceding months and you will choose the lowest interest rate that says, Joe, you are only going to make this rate of return for the life of the transaction. And today, guess what that interest rate is, Joe? Probably around 50 basis points or something, right? Yeah, it's 40 basis points, Joe. <laughs> so, so what if you said, gosh, I can put a dollar in this trust. I can get a dollar tax deduction today. The IRS says, I'm only going to earn 40 basis points. And you tell me, but Derek, I'm going to earn seven or eight or whatever, whatever the number is. You get to keep the spread for a long period of time because the IRS says, this is all you're going to make for 15 or 20 years. So here's a way for you to generate huge income tax deductions up front and use the federal government's money to make money for your family, federal and state government's money, and then at the end of the day, you got to give money to charity. Now, you don't have to give it outright to charity. You can give it to outright to the charities you like. Or if you decide, look, at the end of this period, I got to give away a million or two million or five million. You may decide, hey, I don't want to give it all to one charity right away. Maybe I want to set up my own donor advised fund. Or I want to set up my own private foundation. I move all the money into there. And then I give away 5% of that annually. And then I can have my family on the board and we help figure out what civic duties that we and causes we want to support and how we want to, how we want our money to cure the ills of society. What are, so, what are the um, most common assets that people place into a charitable trust? The charitable lead annuity lead, trust. Yep. Charitable lead. One disadvantage of that trust is it's a grantor trust, meaning all the income that occurs inside that trust flows back to you, Joe, the grantor. And this is the worst part. You don't get any of the income. You don't get any of the assets until the trust is paid off to the charity. We call that phantom income. And I don't care how wealthy you are, Joe, our clients say, don't send me any phantom income. <laughs> so often, oftentimes, clients really like real estate. We have sponsors with real estate that throw off depreciation. And maybe the yield is six, seven, eight percent on oftentimes it's multifamily or storage facilities. And the yield is fantastic. But they have the sponsor of the real estate, whether it be multifamily or storage, has performed what's called cost segregation. And so cost segregation, there was a case 1997 or 98, it was hospital versus commissioner. And the hospital said there's no way this hospital is going to last 39 and a half years. The light's going to wear out seven, the carpet in five, they won the case. And the IRS said, okay, in order for you to smash down the depreciation schedules, take this building apart. You can't depreciate land. You take the building apart, put it into different categories, and then we can assign double declining balance and do a bunch of fancy things from an accounting standpoint. You have to have an engineered study. So these sponsors, whether it be multifamily or um, uh, storage or other, oftentimes get these cost segregation reports, which accelerates the depreciation. So that depreciation sits on your tax re return and waits for passive income and wipes it out. So we don't get any passive income from those investments. Clients love that. So now that money just accumulates out there. We're making additional real estate investments. It's a very, very efficient structure. 
to real estate or commercial real estate that has a very high value where it'll throw off a, a great depreciation or a, a big amount of on the cost segregation study is great for utilizing the charitable lead annuity trust, right? It does. You you need to have real estate that has a lot of improvements. If you have industrial, you know, that doesn't have a lot of improvements, you know, you may have enough depreciation in the hand, first handful of years, but you'll likely run out. So it doesn't have to all be, you know, you can mix the stuff together to make sure you have enough coverage because if you have enough on apartments and you have some industrial buildings, maybe together, you have enough to cover both. So real estate works really well. Munis are paying such poor rates of return. It doesn't work well out there, but you want investments that are going to be capital appreciation or cash flow that's shielded by some tax shield. Depreciation is a great one. And who's, who matches those real estate deals during that period of time? Who, who manages it? Yeah. The trustee of the trust. The Typically, though, the sponsor, whomever, unless you're buying it for yourself, typically the sponsor that you is managing the property and then the trustee is just overseeing the, the investments. And can you highlight again what the differences are between the charitable lead trust and the charitable lead annuity trust? Sure. So let me, um, I think it's the charitable lead annuity trust and the charitable remainder trust. Got it. So here's the differences. So the charitable lead is the, you're typically going to put assets in there and you, you get no step up in basis. So you move assets from your estate into this trust and then you're giving money away over some period. Okay. Let's say it's 10 years and you're going to give away some money annually. And typically you're back, you're back end waiting the payments because you want the money to use to invest because you think you're going to earn eight or 10 or 15 and the government says you're only going to earn 0.4. And so that spread for a long period of time is where the real value is in the, in the transaction. So that's the lead at the end of the period, all those assets, the remainder go to wherever you direct them. You either direct them to come back to you or a trust on your behalf or for your children's behalf. And most times we have those assets go to a trust either for the grantor, you, Joe, you and your wife, for your benefit or for your children's benefit at some date in the future. But so these assets get outside your estate. So that's another tax benefit in these trusts. The mirror image of that is the charitable remainder, which is what most people have heard of. You take an appreciated asset, capital asset, like a piece of real estate, cannot have debt on it. You put it inside the charitable remainder. You sell it. You don't pay tax. Then you say, I'm going to get so much money from the trust over a period of years. And at the end of the period, this money is going to go to charity. Because there's some portions going to go to charity, there's an actuarial calculation that says, okay, you're going to get so much money as a charitable deduction up front. Because interest rates are so low, it doesn't work well. So charitable remainder trusts, 99% of the time should not be set up today since 2009. I still see them being set up. I just don't see that they're super efficient today. Charitable you lead annuity trusts. You don't like them with the interest rates basically, right? And so- Fair enough. <laughs> what is the, I've heard, you know, people, they, they, they'll buy property, they'll run the depreciation all the way down and then they'll donate it to charity. And that, is that kind of, you know, a strategy to use in here? Um, one of our favorite sponsors, we don't, we, we 1031 to the next property. And just to give you his quick track record, he's bought 80 multifamily, uh, excuse me, he's bought 160 multifamily apartments up and down the West coast. He sold out of 80 of them. Worst returns, uh, got, was a four made a four percent rate of return per annum for his investors. It was a six-year hold in Seattle, 2006 to 2012. Investors got all their money back in a four percent return. The best transaction they had a one-year hold in Escondido, California, and they made 149 percent. And the average return has been 26 percent. 
no losses of investor capital. Average hold period, six, seven years. All the all the income that you get over the period, let's say it averages seven, eight, nine percent yield, no taxes because you have the depreciation. And at the end of the period, it'd be 1031 to the next and start over. We buy a bigger property and you get more depreciation, do it again, start it over. And they've got 80 properties on book today. And um, they've got pretty similar results, about 20 for properties that have been owned greater than 18 months are averaging like 28% rates of return. Our clients absolutely love these deals. Really reduced risk, 95% already occupied, putting super low debt on it. Today, we're borrowing money from Fannie and Freddie. The last deal they did, got 10-year interest only financing at 2.35%. Fantastic. Um, So they're hard to find today, but the returns have been unbelievable over the last 20 eight years. And so a 1031, is that the, basically the best known or the best use, the best mechanism to use today when it comes to selling real estate? So the best, um, I think it's the most common and there's lots of intricacies on the back end of 1031. Um, and so um, oftentimes 1031 works extremely well. And um, if the assets are in your estate, let's say that you have you 1031 over and over and over. And when you get one death, um, you get a step up in basis. That's the current law. And so it works extremely efficiently. You're not paying tax on the income. At the end of the period, you're selling your 1031 to the next property. You're not paying taxes there. You now have bought bigger notional real estate. Let's, get, let's contextualize this with an example. You put in 100,000. The hundred thousand, the the promoter has borrowed two hundred thousand because they borrowed sixty six percent loan to value. So you, the investor, has bought three hundred thousand of notional real estate. You with me, Joe? Yep. So now their CPAs are going to split that between so much goes to land and so much goes to improvements. And let's just for simplicity say that it's uh, seventy thirty. Thirty goes to land. So that's 90,000 and 70 goes to improvements. So you have 210,000. And let's say that they get 8% yield over 10 years, just to make it simple. So 8% times 100 grand, eight grand times 10 years is 80 grand. So we used up $80,000 of that 210,000 in depreciation. Make sense? Yep. So now let's say the 100 grand is growing to 150 grand and we sell it and we 1031 to the next. Now that 150 grand, let's use the same two thirds. Now they're gonna borrow 300 grand of debt. So now you've bought your 150,000 of your 1031 plus the 300,000 of debt. You just bought 450,000 of notional. And again, we did 30% and uh, 70% to land. You can see you're, you're gonna have more depreciation to shield more income. And so this, you can just keep playing this game. And um, these are the tax breaks that have been afforded real estate owners for a long, long time in our country. And do you think uh, with the whole discovery of uh, Trump's tax returns and everyone questioning what's going on in real estate, that Biden you know, could address this in some different manner? I think it's really difficult to change this. I think, I mean, this would be equivalent to the Green New Deal if you take away depreciation to real estate holders. I mean, you can imagine how many models, I mean, I, I just couldn't imagine them taking away depreciation. That would be, 
catastrophic. All right. And if your clients don't want to do a 1031 or roll into a new piece of property or they can't find anything, or maybe there's, you know, the, the pricing in the market has gone too high, you know, what are their options that they have at that point? That's exactly right, Joe, especially we, we for five plus years in California, people have a two, you know, a duplex or a fourplex or an eightplex and trying to find something else has been extremely difficult. And so, and oftentimes our promoters, the minimum 1031 amount is like $3 million. And so like, where do we go? And when you look at some of the deals, like this is a one cap or a two cap, like why? There's no way we're not going to make it. What is this, a bank account? Um, so then it's, okay, how do we mitigate? Because I can't find a 1031 do on my own. I'm not big enough to get to a sponsor that can roll me in into a much bigger deal. Okay, how do I mitigate the tax then? If, if it's too big of a pain to manage this and I'm not getting the returns that I want to get, how do I get out? And so that comes back to that six-year adjusted gross income. Let's figure out what kind of flavors that's going to come in at. What are the ways to start mitigating? So we went through we went through charitable deductions. There's other deductions as well. You go through credits, exemptions, then you come down to is is 199A going to help you? You know, let's look at the entire package to say what's the best way to mitigate this, or should I? Maybe I had an awful year with the pandemic, and maybe I have operating losses. Maybe you know. The key is looking forward. And if I have these operating losses that now allow me to use it against capital gains because of the CARES Act, wow, how does that work with my overall uh, strategy? So it's really getting those facts and assumptions down on the paper. I see some people out there kind of promoting, uh, I guess, a deferred sales trust or a monetized installment loan or these other kind of exotic products at the end of the real estate transaction. Do you guys utilize them or do you have any opinion there? Great question. So deferred sales trusts, um, there's a weak link in that strategy. Um, and in, in our opinion, our humble opinion, we think it only works in 2% of the cases, 3% of the cases. And so be careful, get very good advice. Um, we've seen them work, but we think they're way overutilized for folks that should not be using them. For your second strategy, um, we... So essentially figuring out how to take a capital gain and stretching that transaction over 20, 30, 40 years could make a lot of sense. However, a couple, couple pieces of friction in the, in the works here. Number one, in order to truly put somebody in between you and the seller in this monetized installment note, the friction is they're going to charge you like 8%. Because okay, you need it to, to be a third party. Could you get the right family member to get around the IRS regs? You could. I, I, we always talk about it. I haven't seen it happen yet. I haven't seen the right facts and circumstances to justify that. So that's number one, that you're very likely not going to structure with a family member because of a whole bunch of issues. So you're going to pay this fee. And two you may down the road, you may decide, wow, capital gains were cheap today. Why didn't I pay it today? And instead I stretched it out and taxes have gotten worse and worse and worse. And it's caused other bad things to happen to my taxes. So 
those are the two things, unless you're pretty darn certain that, look, this is my payday and I'm going to have low income for a long time and I can really run legislative risk on future capital gains tax rates. Um, so that's fine. And I don't have strong opinions about things, but yeah, so you're, you're not as uh, you don't believe so much in the deferral mechanisms. We'll call it out there versus looking at all the other areas and kind of maybe taking, you know, paying the taxes in the current year. So, well, no, I rarely want to pay taxes in the current year. Um, <laughs> I want to make sure that we calculate what we think the IRR is and where break even is. So if we're going to have a deferral versus a deduction or credit, I want to do the, I want to do the math to say how much of a raise in taxes before I'm indifferent and then how much, where does it have to be where I'd much rather have a deduction or credit versus a deferral? There's so many different tax strategies to use out there and I could see where it's much easier for those doing sizable deals or have a sizable net worth, right? How do you recommend to those that, you know, maybe don't have the resources or quite the capital to allocate, but still have similar type deals just on a smaller level? Yeah, Joe. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> so, it, um, so, you know, we, we tell folks that um, we really advertise for people that have income over a million dollars because that's where you can really employ one, two, three of these strategies. Um, look, it's not to say that you couldn't deploy it at half a million dollars of income. You, you can, um, but it's assembling the team that's forward looking. Most times that uh, wealth managers are only about investment assets, right? It's what do you have to, because I want to deploy your assets and that's how I get paid. Um, most CPAs are compliant CPAs. I tell clients all the time, interview your CPA, find out what percentage of his revenue comes from consulting, what percentage of his revenue comes from preparing tax returns. There you have it. They're like, what? There you have what? Like when he, he or she tells you that 100% of their money comes from preparing tax returns and you think you're getting advice, they're giving you advice the best they can but so they can get you out the door so they can prepare the next tax return. And we affectionately call them leaf rakers. They're raking up dead leaves and putting them on tax returns. And we need leaf rakers, don't get me wrong. But when you're looking for consulting advice to looking forward, they're so busy looking backward, they don't have time to, oh, you really want me to look forward? I'm trained to look backwards. Well, if you're gonna do consulting and planning, you gotta look forward. You gotta put together the time. And if their revenue model is all about looking backwards, it's okay, you, you need them on your team, but you gotta figure out who are the people that are gonna help you look forward and assembling that team. And it's more challenging with smaller number of assets and income. It just is. And I see so many people that, I mean, this is every day that people get trapped or they just get stuck or they still using the same account for the last 10, 20 years and they're not getting any of that consulting outside aspect. So what I'm gathering from this conversation is for anybody listening is that even if you kind of are staying with your existing accounting for a little while, accountant, at least seek outside consulting to review your stuff, do planning and kind of advise your own account on what to do. That's right. Well, you still bring them in. So you bring them in to audit the work. You say, hey, here's what we're going to have you prepare. So before we implement it, we want to make sure that you're totally on board and, you know, try to avoid their deadlines, right? The 915 deadline, the 1015 deadline, you know, between October 15th and the end of the year is a good time to 
hey, we want you to opine, make sure that here's what we intend to do. What issues do you have with it? Um, but having them come up with the ideas and model it and figure I mean, that's just not what they're, that's not their, their deal. So uh, get the, get the people that are going to help you figure that out. What are the, you know, it, it's getting facts, assumptions, and goals, and then figuring out what are the two, three, four things we should look at, priority rank them, start modeling them. And it's just like building a house. You know, you've hired somebody, typically our firm is the architect, and we're just drafting, we're going to bring in the other experts to figure out how to get this, these plans right. And then Joey's like, I don't like this, I don't like this, I like this, do this. Great. And we come back and draw a new plan. Okay. Okay. Now it's more to my liking. Then get that, whoever that trusted advisor that really doesn't want to be a part of the consulting process, have them bless, hey, I'm going to do the tax returns or I'm going to draft the trust. Have those people opine to make sure that, okay, everybody's on seeing it from the same hymn sheet. There's not going to be unintended consequences. Okay, let's move forward. Well, as we near the end, do you think there's more technology will come out that will allow people to get that outside consulting, you know, maybe with a lower net worth through the ability of technology? Man, um, I think technology really helps us gather the facts. And um, if you think about it, this, if you ask your CPA, the number one constraint they have is gathering information from clients. That's what they spend their whole day doing. Hopefully technology is going to make that better. Um, hopefully you can, on all your 1099s and your K1s, you say, hey, one goes to me and one goes directly to my CPA. I don't know. Um, I think also the, the world has become more complicated. And it's technology, I'm not certain, allows machine learning is going to have to come a long ways to ask clients the right questions to get the elicit the answers that could spawn ideas of how best to potentially pivot. Ah, based on that answer, let me ask these four follow-up questions over time. But I think it's, I think the law keeps changing and people's circumstances keep changing. Maybe AI is going to get there. Um, I haven't seen it. It's going to be a It's going to be a while. There's so a lot of there's science and art associated with planning. So between the the IRS changing the laws every year and then the person's situation changing, you're just saying that it's it's always going to have some kind of hands-on approach to it. Well, I think the machine learning can get the science right absolutely faster than humans, but I think the art piece of it is going to be more difficult to figure out the nuance of how to motivate clients to take action, right? So um, they may get the science and ask the questions, you know, um, but I, I, I just find it very difficult at high net worth clients today to do planning. Um, it's a lot of time and effort. You have to be really committed to, to doing planning because there's just a lot of time and effort that goes into it. Um, I, I hope better planning becomes available to further down the food chain. I, I hope that that is the case because people really need it. Um, and I think there's a, a lack of talent pool out there providing it because people get paid to do investments. They get paid to do tax returns. They get paid to do trust. They get paid to sell insurance. There's not a lot of people that say, Hey, I get paid a plan. Well, great. You're a starving artist. You're it's challenging. <laughs> You're saying all the service providers are making so much money on the fees. Nobody wants to kind of come in and do that planning aspect right now at certain income levels because of the cost, right? They say they do, but it's really cloaked in, I really want to get your investments or I really want to uh, sell you insurance. 
I hope at least from all the podcasts, videos, and content that's being put out there today that at least it gives a place for somebody to be able to start or at least get an idea of how things may work so they could at least have a starting point to go somewhere with, right? Yeah, fantastic. I, I hope this was informational. I know we covered, we covered the whole shoreline um, in topics, but uh, I, I hope your listeners found this informative. No, it was great. And we leave off with a final question and always, what is the biggest thing you have implemented in your life that has increased your net worth? Discipline. I think that um, being disciplined in how you approach your investments has been, has led to the very best results, uh, whether that be in due diligence, whether that be in how much to save, how much to spend. I highly recommend in creating that plan and then creating discipline around that plan or helping get advisors that help you get discipline around the plan. That's how you create uh, real wealth. That's great. And do you think a lot of discipline just comes from maturity and learning from the mistakes in investing a lot of it? A hundred percent. So a hundred percent. So, you know, when I've been doing this now 22 years, I've gotten to see people that have just really done well. I've seen people that have really lucked out. I've seen people that have really inherited. I've seen people that have really blown inheritances. And I've seen people who've been very disciplined investors. And we have helped provide that discipline. And that is so gratifying, especially when that family knows man, you guys were a huge part of the reason where, where we're at. Um, very, very gratifying because um, you, you see how, how much it helps these families. And I mean, whether it be them helping their grandchildren pay for college or family vacations or for more family unity, um, pretty, pretty rewarding. That's good. I appreciate that. And if people want to reach out to you, what is the best way to get a hold of you? You can go onto our website. It's at www.centurawealth. It's C-E-N-T-U-R-A-W-E-A-L-T-H.com. Centurawealth.com. And uh, there's lots of ways to connect with us there. And uh, happy to talk to anybody who would want to chat with me. I appreciate Derek for coming out on the show today. Thank you. Absolutely, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thanks for uh, doing this for your listeners. What a great service. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. See you on our next episode. Thanks for listening to The Joe Roberts Show. Take these tips and insights that you can use to help grow your own personal wealth and share them with a friend that could also benefit. Don't miss a single episode or updates. Subscribe to our email list at joerobert.com. And as always, keep pushing yourself towards a more impactful life. The Joe Roberts Show. Joe Robert Show The Joe Robert Show